when Rick Loomis started flying Buffalo in the 1970s and began to hire his employees, he couldn't possibly have known that he was putting together a team of people that would continue to make art together some 40 years later. They were authors and artists that would lend their expertise to Flying Buffalo's tabletop gaming titles, but would later on go on to help create video games as well. One of the games they helped on was today's topic, Wasteland, an open-world role-playing game that was originally released for the Apple II on January 2nd, 1988. Today, we're going to tell you the story of Wasteland, starting with the creation of the company that brought everyone together through Wasteland's contributions to modern gaming. So stick around and join us for today's trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 123rd episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we'll tell you the story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. This week, we're all going to learn about Wasteland, originally released for the Apple II on January 2nd, 1988. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who is always wandering the desert, trying to recruit people into our party. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, what are we recruiting for this week? Well, at first I would say that it was for our hardcore Iron Man group. We finally got that all situated, so honestly, at this point, I think it's just to throw a party in the desert. Everybody's coming to the, to the party to have a real good time. We're coming to the desert to... Dancing in the desert, blowing up the sunshine. Okay. I was going to make a RuneCraft reference. I don't remember what you have to do specifically in the desert, so... Uh, I mean, there's a lot in the desert to do. Very true. Well, that segue is real good, and so what are we playing? RuneCraft, RuneScape is first on the list, but what else are you playing? Well, Dave, this week, other than RuneScape, would be Tarkov, a little bit of Rocket League, a little bit of Construction Simulator, and a little bit of Warzone. Wait, 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 wait. A little bit of Construction Simulator? You played it for, like, an entire day. You say that like the other games don't take about six hours at a time as well. Like, <laughs> it's the same amount of time between all of the games. Okay, so it's a lot of bit of a little bit of games. A little bit of a lot of games. Okay. Yeah, yeah. How Do about yourself, know? though? What are you playing this week? Oh, man, what did I play? Rocket League, Warzone. I don't think there's anything else. I think I've had a pretty boring week. Well, you played some RuneScape. I mean, yeah, I said we played RuneScape, but um, hmm. I don't think there's been anything else, honestly. it's It's been it. You didn't play any Diablo this week? Oh, yeah, I've been playing a lot of Diablo. <laughs> see, yeah. how I, see how I blocked that out? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Trying to say something about me and my habits. Uh, uh, yeah, huh? yeah. But except I haven't played Diablo in like the last three days, I think it was. But the, the couple days before that, I binged it. So Indeed you did, Dave. Oh, man. All right. So today we're going to look at Wasteland. It is a trilogy with a 
modern version. We're going to learn about the first one, but I will start by asking, do you have any familiarity with Wasteland? I do not. This is the first hearing about hearing of it. Nope. No idea about Wasteland is at all, huh? No, no. Uh, it sounds like it's going to be a game that's uh, kind of similar to uh, Fallout, but um, just because, you know, a Wasteland, like, apocalyptic desert area kind of thing, but that, that's my best guess. I'm going to just guess it was, like, early apocalypse survival. Maybe. You know, early on in our podcasting days when we were still figuring things out, we did an episode where we talked about play-by-mail gaming. Do you remember that at all? I don't remember the games, but I do remember the concept of it, yes. I think it was like our 10th episode, which was forever ago, where we did a episode on democracy and video games because it was right around the election day that year. Or maybe it was Civilization. I know we talked about a game called Diplomacy. It was a strategy board game that was eventually played by mail through magazines, like fanzines in like the 60s onward. Yeah, because you would have to mail in your your move for the thing, and then it would get posted, and yeah, and like a fanzine, and people could respond to that, and so on, and so yeah, forth. So. Exactly, I remember well, that. Well, diplomacy may have been one of the earliest games we know of that was played by mail, but it really wasn't until the seventies that people started creating games solely to be played by mail, and that's that's pretty much thanks to Rick Loomis. Now, Rick Loomis was stationed in Hawaii. He served in the United States Army starting in 1969, and while stationed in Hawaii, he discovered a tabletop war game called Gettysburg in a toy store. Now, Gettysburg inspired him to create a game called Nuclear Destruction. This was a strategic missile game with an emphasis on diplomacy, which he started advertising to readers of one of those magazines called The General, in 1970 as a play-by-mail game now it picked up pretty quick he had more than 200 players pretty quickly and so he asked another soldier named steve mcgregor to write him a computer program to moderate the games so they began renting a computer nearby the base that they were stationed in and they used the name flying buffalo to conduct business Nice. Funny enough, um, Rick Loomis claims that this is the first time in history that someone had used a computer solely for gaming. Because that's its only purpose was this computer program. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. But that is definitely a claim that he made about that. So in 1972, Loomis is discharged from the army. And afterwards... He and McGregor, they incorporate their PBM, their play-by-mail company, as Flying Buffalo Incorporated. So they stuck with the name. They pooled their savings to purchase a microcomputer of their own to run the games. And pretty much now, Nuclear Destruction is recognized as the first commercial play-by-mail game. And Flying Buffalo, as a company has earned credit for starting a whole professional play-by-mail industry in the United States. Now, as we learned in previous episodes, there was a lot going on with gaming in the 70s. It was the golden age of arcades. 
and a lot of our favorite video game genres found their origins in concepts that were pretty much developed or invented during the 70s. And as we learned in the previous episodes on Ultima and Wizardry, the role-playing genre, which came about during these years, took most of its cues from Dungeons & Dragons. Now, one person who loved the concept of Dungeons & Dragons was a public librarian from Phoenix, Arizona, named Ken St. Andre. Now, Ken loved the idea of fantasy role-playing, but after reading a friend's Dungeons & Dragons rule booklet, he found the rules too confusing, and so he did the most logical thing. He wrote his own rules. Hmm. Nice. As he put it, I just wanted to play something with my friends at a reasonable price with reasonable equipment. So in 1975, he self-publishes Tunnels and Trolls in April, and he prints 100 copies to sell. He meets Rick Loomis, and he asks Rick to take 40 copies to a event called the Origins Game Fair, where Rick sells every single copy he brought with him. So as a result, as uh, Flying Buffalo purchases the rights to Tunnels and Trolls, and they publish a second edition under their own publishing label in December of 1975, the same year. Now, about here, Ken St. Andre would start writing his next game, which is called Starfaring, which would be published in August of 76. And Starfaring is recognized as the first science fiction role-playing game. So, so Ken makes Tunnels and Trolls, and he moves on to create the, the first science fiction role-playing game. So this man's just kind of doing things at the time. But while he's doing this, Tunnels and Trolls is gaining in popularity. It was only the second modern role-playing game ever published. It's becoming incredibly popular, and it it's living up to its intended purpose of becoming a more accessible alternative to D&D. And in case you're curious how it differed, Tunnels and Trolls had similar statistics. They had all the classes, the different types of adventure, concept of adventuring that D&D had. But their points, their magic system was points-based. It was really simple. And it employed the use of six-sided dice so you didn't have to go out and buy the, the D20s that Dungeons & Dragons is famous for. But one of the most interesting things about Tunnels and Trolls is that it could be played by one player. It was the first system to publish a series of fantasy-themed game books that were designed to be played by one person without the need of anyone else to referee you. Now, last week, Rob, we talked about Final Fantasy, right? Uh, yes, we did, Dave. And if you'll recall, Final Fantasy was originally called Fighting Fantasy. Do you remember that? Indeed, I do. Do you remember why they couldn't use Fighting Fantasy in the end? Because there was something else with that name already. That is. Correct. So Fighting Fantasy was actually the name of a whole series of popular single player game books that were also published in the 80s, just to kind of bring a full circle. But before they all got their start, Tunnels and Trolls had a share of game books published and they were written by some notable people. Now, I mean, Ken St. Andre did write a few, but also among the authors of these game books is Rick Loomis himself, the creator of Flying Buffalo. And one of the other authors is Michael Stackpole. Now, Michael Stackpole is an American science fiction author now known for his books written in the Star Wars and Battletech universes. But back then, he got to start with Flying Buffalo. He was hired on as a full-time employee after they accepted his submission 
for a solo Tunnels and Trolls adventure, which he called City of Terrors in 1978. And so they hired him on, and he worked for the company writing columns on industry news and reviews for a magazine that Flying Buffalo published called The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Now, The Sorcerer's Apprentice was, as I said, a magazine, and it was produced by another Flying Buffalo employee named Liz Danforth. She worked towards the publication of all 17 issues of the magazine. And while employed with Flying Buffalo, aside from working on The Sorcerer's Apprentice, she also worked towards editing and developing Tunnels and Trolls. In fact, she was one of the sole people responsible for the, a later fifth edition of Tunnels and Trolls. So coming out of the 70s, Flying Buffalo is gaining popularity w- with its game books and its play-by-mail gaming. In fact, the company stated that in 1980, they had more than 3,000 players worldwide. And then they celebrated their 10,000th account opened in 1985. So things are happening for all these writers in Flying Buffalo during this period, right? They're, they're growing at an exponential rate. More people are seeing their material and things are going good for the team at Flying Buffalo. Now, on the other hand, there were a handful of video game developers, namely Brian Fargo, Troy Worrell, Jay Patel, and Rebecca Heinemann that were all in exactly the opposite situation. The company that they all worked for was called Boone Corporation. It was an early video game developer, and about this time in the early 80s, their company was going bankrupt and called it quits. So these four people get together, and they convince an investor named Chris Wells to help them fund a new company, feeling, kind of pitching it as a way like, hey, we know that we can do a better job than Boone. Give us some money, let us prove it to you, and we're going to go from there. And Chris Wells agreed. So in October of 1983, they all became the founding members of Interplay Entertainment. Now right out of the gate, they picked up a contract to make a computerized encyclopedia, and they managed to get Boone, not Boone, uh, Interplay started working contracts like this for about the first year. And then they managed to win a contract worth about $100,000 with Activision to develop three adventure titles. Okay. Okay. So they went from making encyclopedias to games. Pretty much, yeah. Cool wasn't just encyclopedias. Uh, I know they had military contracts in the middle there. Oh. And uh, that's all I can remember off the top of my head. They did encyclopedias. They did some military contracts. They were basically doing utility things. And then then they managed to win a contract with Activision for, for three adventure titles. Now, the architect for much of Interplay success was uh, one of those developers. And his name was Brian Fargo. Uh, and yes, he's from the Wells Fargo family, but not not the Wells Fargo money, apparently. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Now, Brian Fargo developed a desire to create video games after his parents bought him an Apple II in 1977. Well, still in high school, he wrote his first video game titled Labyrinth of Mardigan, along with his friend Michael Cranford. Their first commercially distributed game 
came in 1981. It was a text adventure called The Demon's Forge. So in 1984, when Interplay won the contract to make these three titles, Fargo already had the experience and a programming base to make it happen. So he basically took his framework from these early games like Demon's Forge, and they used it to churn out these three adventure titles pretty quickly. Now, the first one was called Mind Shadow. It was a game that was loosely based on the Born Identity. There was one called the Tracer Sanction, which puts the players in the role of an interplanetary secret agent. And the last one was called Borrowed Time, which was a noir mystery about a detective who tries to rescue his kidnapped wife. And it was a pretty smooth process from the team because they, they kind of already had the engine. They just needed to plug in the game itself, the story, you know? Right. So with all that experience under their belt and now money to carry on, Fargo brought in his early development partner from school, Michael Cranford, who had an idea for another adventure game. Now, this one turned out to be a hit. It was the first non-wizardry title to challenge the Ultima series in terms of sales numbers. It was released in 1985 and was called The Bard's Tale. And The Bard's Tale spawned a successful story, series rather, that is significant enough that it should get its own episode. So we're going to leave the story of The Bard's Table for another time. But... What you need to know about the Bard's Table is that it was very successful and it gave Fargo and the team at Interplay the opportunity to keep working on all of their passion projects. And to Fargo's credit, he wasn't just interested in cranking out sequels, which they kind of did do for the Bard's Table. The table, the Bard's Table, the Bard's Tale. Thank you. What was the sequel called? The Bard's Table? I would be funny if it was. Well, damn. So here it's 1986 and the Bart's tale was published by electronic arts and Brian Fargo wanted to pitch them another role playing game. Um, but role playing games were almost all done in a fantasy setting and he was interested in doing something in a completely different setting. He was inspired by his love of Mad Max two and post-apocalyptic fiction and so he decided that he wanted to make a game that would be a hybrid of ultima and the bard's tale but set in a post-apocalyptic setting like mad max so basically in 1986 he began a project he began his project and he began to do research on gameplay systems for the new game you know because he wanted to take it into a different setting so his thought process too was you know how can i make this different from ultima and the bard's tale and he found a gameplay system he really liked in a game called mercenaries spies and private eyes now mercenaries spies and private eyes was a tabletop role-playing game published by a company called blade and blade was a division of none other than flying buffalo and this tabletop game just so happened to be written by Flying Buffalo employee Michael Stackpole, who, if you'll recall, got his start by writing the Tunnels of Terror gamebook for Tunnels and Trolls. That is a tongue twister. Good lord. Indeed it is, Dave. But you did well this time. In fact, 
the game mechanics for mercenaries, spies, and private eyes were largely based on tunnels and trolls. So unsurprisingly, in 1987, Michael Stackpole was announced as the author of what would become the Wasteland video game. Brian Fargo then went to work, also convincing Tunnels and Troll creator Ken St. Andre to join the team as a writer and designer, and the team brought Liz Danforth along, who worked as a scenario writer on the game. Now, to make a good role-playing game, they the team had a philosophy, and they believed that a good story needed to be the basis of it, so the team worked on writing the story for over a year. Well, the software team worked on programming all the individual pieces, Michael Stackpole and Ken St. Andre kept feeding new scenarios into the game to see how it would play out. Now, in the beginning, they wrote a plot that was very similar to Red Dawn, in which Russians occupied the United States and you would be the Americans fighting to liberate our nation. However, at one point, Ken St. Andre took a risk and pitched a completely different story involving killer robots that wanted to wipe out and replace humanity. Inevitably, this is the one that took. So, both the writers and the development team, they continue to work together. You know, scenarios on programming on one end, scenarios on the other. And they managed to finish the game, and they released it for the Apple II on January 2nd, 1988. So, Wasteland. Rob, you have no familiarity. None whatsoever. No. It, it is a, you're, you're correct, Wasteland, post-apocalyptic, uh, very similar to Fallout, and we'll cover that in a moment. It is an open-world role-playing game. It was one of the first games to feature a persistent world where all the changes you made to the world were stored and and kept. Um, So you're saying like you could make decisions in the game that would affect the future of the game and you couldn't go back to change those without restarting. More so what's unique about it is that like if you move things in an area and you left the area and came back, the things you moved would still be where you left them. And that was... That was particularly, it was one of the first games to do that. That wasn't common at all. Typically, back then, because of the way games were written, when you left an area and you came back, the area was reset. Area was reset. But otherwise, it's an open world role playing game. The battles are, the battles take place kind of turn based, and it plays, it plays like a a computer role playing game. It's a computer role playing game. So was being on the Apple too, was this one of those text based or were there, you know, images that appeared on the screen you would no, move? No, it definitely had images. It was it was a visual game. It um it was a visual game. It 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 was yeah. Yep. It's still weird to think of games back on the Apple II and things for me, just not having grown up seeing that. Every time I think about it, I just think of like the old black screen with green text and that's how you play the game and then it would just show an image that's kind of how i envision it but i'm guessing it's not much like that no i mean but you're gonna think like yeah maybe that's kind of what you're thinking of but then like these games are made like this one was made alongside its commodore 64 version and it's an ms dos version which were straight color you know so 
Uh, gotcha, Dave. Well, it doesn't sound like there's much to the game, uh, but I guess there's, there's a lot to the game. Well, I mean, as far as the playing of the game, obviously there's the story behind it, which I mean, you could tell us the whole story, how it plays out. You want to know the whole story? Well, I don't know, Dave. Do we? We don't know. Okay. Well, then I think with that, it's time to kick off our reviews of the game. <laughs> don't you agree? Yeah, we can. We can. We can. No, I can tell the story. I can tell the story. If you're curious, basically, I, I mean, I told most of it. It's killer robots. Killer robots in a post-apocalyptic Las Vegas. You're basically a team of desert rangers, and you're basically um, exploring the last remnants of humanity, and you find out that there are killer machines trying to take down the human race, and um, basically you're you have to defend the world against killer machines. So, so did it, the people create these machines that then killed the people? I mean, someone created, yeah, essentially that's what it is, right? I mean, someone has to create AI, which it's us. It's always us. So it's not killer space robots. No, no, no. We did it. It's definitely it's definitely an artificial intelligence. It's like Terminator. It's artificial Bastards. intelligence. Well, this is pre When will humanity learn? We, we will not learn. You're right. There's so many movies that tell us about it, so many books, so many games, and we just haven't learned. We still keep pushing for AI. I have played these games. Um, there are modern remakes of the series, and the third one just came out, I think, in 2020. I, I, we'll cover that shortly. I've never finished one of them. I, for whatever reason, I can't get into them. I genuinely don't know what it is, but it's just not. I, I, I've tried. I don't have anything against it. I'm sure they're great games. I, they just they don't grab me enough. But there's a very fervent fan base of these games. Obviously, they've made three of them already. You got you got to have people who want to play them to keep making them. Um, so there are lots of people out there who love these games. Um, well, Dave, everyone has their own tastes. I mean, there yes. are obviously games that I love that you don't, and games that you love that I don't. Very true. I, I guess with that being said, you said there are people who love this. Are there, are there, I guess I'll ask you, are there people who love these games that you know of? Well, not many people I know actually know about this game, believe it or not. Um, but obviously, there are some reviews out there. This is another one of those games being from the long lost world of 1988, where you don't find a whole lot of stuff about them. True enough. Uh, but I was able to find a few reviews, although the the critic reviews, I did manage to find some from the time. The player reviews are a little more updated. But with that, let's kick it off with the critic reviews and see what uh, our critics had to say about this one. Okay. So first up in May of 1988, we had Computer Gaming World, who said that if you like sophistication in your simulations, grab this one. It's ease of play, richness of plot, problem-solving requirements, skill and task system, and graphic display all make this one of the best games ever played. It wins my vote for Adventure Game of the Year. So it sounds like a, a lot of stuff and definitely a positive from them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in July of 1988, Happy Computer said that Wasteland is certainly not a program for someone who has never touched an RPG before. But 
It offers a lot of fans of this genre an imaginative, exciting story, impressively animated monster graphics, and a lot of playful freedom. It is an unusual role-playing game that will appeal to those who are fed up with the usual fantasy stories. So again, it, it definitely seemed that while it may not have been for everyone, it definitely had a fan base. And for those that aren't into the fantasy, they uh, got a, a change from the norm. But there's not really a whole lot of more critic reviews with that. So we'll move on to the couple of user reviews I was able to find. Um, and first up is from user WareGamer on Moby Games, who says that given the limitations of the hardware at the time, this was an amazing game which pre-configured almost all of the best features of the more modern title, Fallout. The post-apocalyptic setting allowed for the combination of recognizable modern objects and weapons with a completely unknown wilderness, and the actual story was complex and interesting. The recognizability of things was particularly important because it allowed item descriptions to be terse without failing to inform. On a 48k machine with 140k discs, keeping descriptions down to 20 characters or so allowed for a much bigger world. Although it was realistic and designed to be part of game balance, the extremely limited finite ammunition supply, combined with the possibility of random monster encounters, could make the game very frustrating. But he does finish off saying one of the games that is original and fun to play and seminal in the development of the industry. Wasteland is an engaging story and world to explore, and in every way, a worthy ancestor to Fallout. So, again, seems to be mostly positive things about the game, not a whole lot of negative to say. And last up, we have a review from the website Tagazeal, who calls Wasteland an impressive game in its time. It offered an overhead Ultima-style navigation with an expansive, persistent world, with unique locations, an actual plot, and a detailed setting. All with decent graphics and animated encounter portraits to boot. At the same time, it managed to fit on just one three and a half floppy disk, or in the original release, two double-sided 5.25 inch. And a paragraph book. When released in 1988, it became the Skyrim of its time. A runaway hit for Apple II, Commodore 64, and DOS, selling a quarter of a million copies, earning acclaim from gamers and reviewers alike, which apparently no longer exist, and a very profitable product for electronic arts. That's when it became a victim of its own success. But what that means, you know, it didn't really have much after that. No, it didn't have much after that. Hey, I want to revisit something real quick. What do you want to revisit, Dave? Your whole experience with an Apple II was with an Apple IIc. So you're only used to Apple IIs having that green monochrome monitor, correct? Uh, yeah, that, that would be it. Yeah, the Apple II was a whole series, and that was the only monochrome in a bunch. The rest oh. were all color. Well, go figure. <laughs> yeah, there was <laughs> Apple II, Apple II GS, um, Apple IIe, I think. I think there was an Apple II Plus. Um, almost all the others had color. 
um had i mean they all they all had color outputs but that specific one was built as like a portable apple II because it was smaller and that monitor that you know of is the monochrome monochrome monitor that came with that apple II C. gotcha well not like i really grew up with them by the time that i was old enough to see this we just had the one laying around here and we did that we were way beyond uh needing to be using an apple II. We did. But the Apple II is very significant because it was really the first affordable computer for middle class families. So it was everywhere, which is why you hear so many of these early games are Apple II, Apple II, Apple II, because it was pretty much, I mean, one of the first household portable computers. And and most of them were color. Just a side note. Well, damn. Good to know, Dave. So... Tell us, now that we know that for most of the reviews we could find, it seems to be a pretty pretty positive experience with this game. Um, you mentioned that there are multiple titles, so obviously it had to have done well enough to continue having support behind it to continue development. So what's the legacy of this game? Well, admittedly, Wasteland has kind of a messy history. Uh, how, how do you figure? Well, the first one was a success. It really made a name for interplay they were already becoming known thanks to the bard's tale and wasteland just kind of made them a household name the original wasteland originally sold or it the original wasteland immediately sold about two hundred and fifty thousand copies right on its release and i mean you covered some of it but it received a lot of positive press computer gaming world named it their adventure game of the year in 1988 for instance. Hmm. Crazy. Now, Wasteland was followed up in 1990 by a game called Fountain of Dreams, which was a similar game set in post-nuclear war Florida. But there was one problem. What's that, Dave? Neither Interplay nor any of the creative team that worked on Wasteland had any involvement with Fountain of Dreams. So could you even call it a sequel to Wasteland? Or was it just a game that was made similar to Wasteland? Found of Dreams is one of the early games in which Electronic Arts decided to make their own in-house sequel to a previous title that it published but did not develop. And to answer your question, Found of Dreams was not a good game. Computer Gaming World noted that it incorporated all of the worst features of Wasteland and not very much of the good ones. And so Found of Dreams lingered over the Wasteland franchise for many, many years until finally about 2003, in which Electronic Arts finally dropped any claims that the game had any connection with Wasteland. Wow. So the game sucks so bad they had to completely take it out of the the history of it, huh? Very much. And make it its own thing. That's that's kind of interesting. Now in the meantime, Interplay was actually working on their own follow-up, which ironically enough, I didn't just do this on purpose, was named Meantime. And huh. Meantime nice. was being developed on the same engine as Wasteland. Its story, however, was completely different. The premise behind Meantime was that the player would travel through time and recruit historical figures to their party. Now, this game was being worked on Liz Danforth and a few others, but shortly into the project, Danforth left. And this put that project into question. 
and Interplay waited against declining Apple II sales, and ultimately they made a decision to cancel that project altogether. So I, I'm curious, would you like? I guess I don't know like what the purpose behind the game is, but you're just traveling through times and like you could get George Washington to join your party. Yeah, I mean there was a story, but that that was the basis behind it was that like that was the whole draw. We're traveling through time to fight this enemy and we can actually recruit historical figures to join us. I wonder what I wonder what historical figures they had in there. Like could you have all of the good good guys and then all of the bad people? Like could you have one where it's like Fidel Castro and Hitler and that's your team because you know that they're good at killing people? You know what's really funny? I have a game concept that's exactly that, like written down in my notes somewhere that revisits my brain every so often. That's exactly something that I have. Uh, but I I don't know I don't know about meantime. Well, just goes to show you, Dave, that twisted minds think alike. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's see if it says anything. For example, Amelia Earhart joins the party when she's rescued from a Japanese prison camp, and Weimar von Braun does when he's helped to escape the Soviets at the end of World War II. Each character would also have a particular specialty. Cyrano de Bergerac, for example, would have an expert fencing skill. The party would attempt to repair damage caused by a similar party of time-traveling villains attempting to alter the course of history by influencing events. Ah, so the team you're up against would be your Castro and your Hitler, and you're trying to get the good guys to stop those bad guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The box ah. cover was never made public, but it was said to have featured Albert Einstein, who was a playable character in the game. Nice. Yeah. yeah Sounds yeah, very yeah. interesting. Wonder, uh, definitely would have been interesting to see how something like that would come about. Yeah, well, we don't. But, but, Interplay did get to visit the Wasteland again. Not, only not literally the Wasteland. Not this Wasteland. If you'd like to learn all about it, go ahead and visit our website at www.memorycardlane.com. And check out episode 111 to learn all about Fallout. Basically, there were employees at Interplay who wanted to make another game featuring their wasteland, but they couldn't get the license from Electronic Arts. So they changed it up, and the first Fallout game is the result. Now, of course, there's more to the story, but we talked about that back in episode 111, so... Go check out the Fallout episode to learn more about where Fallout came from. But, I mean, basically, they couldn't make another Wasteland here. So they said, we'll go make our own Wasteland with Blackjack and Hookers. So. <laughs> nice one. Mm -hmm. Now, coming into the end of the century, it, under Brian Fargo's leadership, Interplay wasn't doing so hot. Uh, there are various reasons. There's said to be increased competition, less than stellar returns on their sports titles, and a lack of console titles. T titles? Titles. The end result of all this fallout was that uh, Interplay was bought out and Brian Fargo ended up leaving the company. In 2002, he founded another company called In Exile Entertainment in exile because he and the others felt that they were exiled from the companies that they founded. And a year later in 2003, they negotiated a deal in which they purchased all rights to the West, West waste 
land westland all right it's the westland (laughs) (laughs) oh my god in 2003 they negotiated a deal in which they purchased all rights to the wasteland franchise from electronic arts and they held on to it for a while for almost 10 years but in april of 2012 they launched a kickstarter campaign to fund wasteland 2 which would be a direct sequel to the original most of the original team was on board uh kent st andre michael stackpole liz danforth all the names we've talked about they were all attached to the project they set an initial goal of nine hundred thousand dollars, and they ended up raising two point nine million dollars. Well, damn! It was one of the most successful Kickstarters. I think it may have been at the time, and then it got surpassed by I don't know Star Citizen or someone. Still pretty impressive numbers. It's very impressive. So basically, Wasteland Two was funded and released in twenty fourteen. Now, in November of 2018, Exile was purchased by Microsoft Studios and incorporated under that banner. So they're a Microsoft gaming studio now. In honor of Wasteland's 30th anniversary, Exile developed a completely remastered version of the original game, and they called it Wasteland Remastered, and that came out in early 2020. And then on August 28th, 2020, they released Wasteland 3. Now, like I said, they're under the Microsoft banner. So if you're curious, all three games in the series are available on Microsoft's Game Pass. So if you're a Game Pass member, you can go and sign up there and play all of them. Really no risk if you're a if you're a, a member. So yeah. So they did, Rob. They created a whole series of these games, and people love them. Damn. I, it, somehow it's never even passed my name. I've never even, even going through Game Pass, I've never seen the name. So it's kind of surprising. And funny enough, they show up constantly on mine, so they're like closely related to all the games I like on, I play on Game Pass, apparently. So and I, I know... I know that before we did this episode, I had downloaded and tried to play Wasteland 3 when it first came out, and I couldn't get to it. And for this one, I went back to Remastered and tried to play it, and again, I couldn't get into it. But, you know, there's a lot of other games out. Sometimes it do be like that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you play a lot of the same game, and sometimes it just doesn't have that hook that you need because, hey, you know, I get my fill of this style of game from this other one that has this story that I'm really into, and the story just didn't have the hook yeah it just didn't have the hook and exile is still going still making i mean wasteland wasteland 3 is their last game now some of the others have gone on to do other things uh rick loomis the guy who founded flying buffalo the guy that now we can credit as having given most of the team that worked on wasteland their start he ended up managing flying buffalo until he passed away in 2019 you mean rick loomis Rick Loomis, yeah, sorry. Rick Loomis. Much of Flying Buffalo's gamebook library has been sold off, but his family has kept most of his play-by-mail games, and they still operate them through his website, which I've posted in our show notes if you want to check them out. Um, Brian Fargo is still running NXL Entertainment, and like I said, they're still making games. I don't know what they're making right now, but they're still making games, so... 
go on him. Um, Ken St. Andre has continued to work on tabletop games through the years. He even helped bring Tunnels and Trolls into the modern era with, with the publishing of the 7th edition back in 2008. He didn't actually retire as a librarian until 2010, and he has continue to write books and give his expertise as uh, you know to to these gaming companies michael stackpole ended up working on uh authoring a few games such as bard's tale 3 and he wrote the stories for a few star trek titles and as i noted before he has written many books over 20 books in fact set in various uh geeky fandoms with the most notable being Star Wars. He's written numerous Star Wars novels, so good for him. And Liz Danforth has actually been a freelance illustrator for most of her career. In fact, she has produced over 50 pieces of art that are now the artwork for Magic the Gathering cards. Wow. Right? Damn. So, honestly, pretty much everyone here at Flying Buffalo has has gone on to have very successful careers and they all got their start with this little play by mail uh, company that um, play by mail company that started in the seventies and here they just all, all got together and then spread out into the world and did good things, you know? No, absolutely. I mean, although wasteland might not be huge, seems they all went on to do great things and it's, it's just crazy to know that something like this just was the start of it all. Yeah. Seems to be a lot of the case with a lot of these older game companies, though. They're uh, very talented people working on a lot of those early, early games. Well, yeah. Not I that mean, there aren't nowadays. I just, it just, they're a lot less notable because there are such large companies working on most titles. That's a, that's a more fair statement. I mean, all the people are talented, um, but, but yes, they... Their talent very much gets lost in the sheer size of development these days. I saw someone post the other day a statistic that kind of made me really think for a second. Development cycles on modern games are so long that if a team started developing a AAA title today, it probably wouldn't come out until there was a PlayStation 6. It would it would likely come out for the PlayStation Six. So next year, with the way that uh, oh, it seems, God. The... <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no. I think we got another what uh, four, four or five years on the uh, current generation. Uh, who knows anymore, Dave? It could change in an instant. Yeah, it could change in an instant. But yeah, all these people did great things. Um, all these people did great things, and and one of their big one of Wasteland's one of Wasteland's biggest legacies that it left was that this is the foundation for the fallout series which has largely eclipsed the wasteland series and fallout is one of the bigger gaming franchises out these days and like i said we covered it back in episode 111 so if you would like to check out that episode you can of course listen to our podcast you know find old episodes anywhere you listen to our podcast but you can also find old episodes on our website at www.memorycardlane.com um, also on memorycardlane.com, you'll see as soon as I post it, it's January 3rd, I'm working on it, uh, calendar of all the upcoming events, you'll find an archive of our old episode, you could find links to our Discord, 
you can find our social media links on there. I can be found on various platforms as David is wrong. Rob, where can people find you these days? I am on twitch.tv forward slash fat boy with an I rips with a Z. Yeah, that's right. Fat boy rips. That's 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 how we do it. Indeed uh, it is, Dave. Indeed uh, it be that way. But yeah, that's um that's Wasteland. That's what inspired Wasteland. That's what Wasteland left behind. That's the legacy of the Wasteland. And now you know about the two most popular post-apocalyptic series in video gaming. Are there more, Dave? Yeah, of course there's more, but those are the big ones. So, yeah. Fair enough. All right, ladies and gentlemen, each week we'll tell you a story about a topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. Today we learned about Wasteland. And while teaching you about Wasteland, we hoped to teach you something new about it. Something about what it took from the world as its inspiration, or something about what it gave back to the world as its legacy. One of the best parts about getting to teach you week in and week out is that we learn to... I mean, we learn. Admittedly, this is all new to us as we go into these episodes, so it's cool getting to learn and teach every single week. As part of the acknowledgement that this is a learning environment, we like to take a moment and talk about our big takeaways from each episode. So, Rob, what did you learn today? Well, Dave, as I mentioned at the beginning, I was not familiar with this franchise at all, so obviously I learned that it existed for one. Um, I learned that there was something before Fallout that had the same idea, though that's not very much surprising. I think the most surprising piece of all of this is that a large, well, somewhat large game series came from a man named Wells and a man named Fargo and had no relation to the Wells Fargo name of Banks. Where did Wells come from? Was not the investor named Chris Wells? Oh my goodness. How did I not? Was it? How did I miss that? I could not tell you, Dave. But uh, if I remember correctly. Yeah, no, you're right. It's Chris Wells. The in- the I investor. did not put that together. Yes, there was a Wells and Fargo. And somehow that's just coincidence. No relation. I, I mean, obviously, you mentioned that Fargo came from the Fargo name and, you know, being an investor, maybe Wells came from the Wells name and they were just the, the off shot cousins of the Wells Fargo name that made the gaming division. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it, it, I, it does note that he's a descendant of the, the Fargo family that founded that bank, but it makes no indication that he is of the, the wealth of the banking family that I can tell. Still kind of weird, you know, Wells, Chris Wells, and Brian Fargo. Hey, I didn't put it together. I'm going to give you kudos for your little weird brain making that connection, so. Well, that's that's it for me, Dave. Uh, you know, it's just, yeah, those little connections, those weird coincidences in life that uh, that come forth. But what about you? What, what was your favorite thing, your, your biggest takeaway from this week? Oh, this was just a cool story. Uh, first of all, I never knew about Tunnels and Trolls. That was... I'm not big in the tabletop gaming and you know, I, I didn't know that existed and I just really liked the way this played out to where, you know, flying Buffalo was created and hired all these people. And then 
you know, Brian Fargo creates a company after having to leave a failing one and says, hey, I want to make this game, but I need a new game system, like a new gaming engine that, you know, that's something different that it's based off of. And he stumbles across a flying buffalo tabletop game. And coincidentally, it's written by all these guys, you know, at, at Flying Buffalo. And he's able to bring them all together to make this great game. I just like I just like the way the story progressed, to be honest with you. I, I think it was cool, but I didn't know any of it. I didn't know Tennis of Trolls. I didn't really know much about Wasteland. This was all pretty cool to me. It is kind of funny to hear that that someone was like, Dungeons and Dragons isn't that great. Let's make another one. Tun- no. Tunnels and Trolls. No, I don't think it was so much that Dungeons and Dragons wasn't great. Dungeons and Dragons was too complicated and expensive. Well, for okay, him. I guess great, not great is a bad way of putting it. You're right. It was not accessible for the people right. who were not as serious about it or unable to afford it. Right. But they're like, yeah, no, Tunnels and Trolls makes sense. It's it's obvious enough that it's related to it, but it's different. And somehow that was completely allowed because I feel like today with the copyright laws and things, if people would be like, yeah, nope, too close, shut it down, cease and desist. I don't know about that, but maybe. I mean, I, can can we make like robots and rubble? Sure, you want. Or, you know, I mean, yeah, if we could do that, let's do it. Okay. Create our own tabletop with name like that and see what happens. We're gonna Google that and see if there's a robots and rubble one. Okay, I, I doubt there will be, Dave, but let's we'll find out. Let's see. Robots and rubble. Robots. I guess what would be a good R for it? Robots and rubble. There's robot rumble. Well, yeah, duh. There was a game for the Mattel and television that I have no clue about called Robot Rubble. Oh, okay. And Robot Rubble... I can't tell you anything about it right now. I just see a picture, but it looks like a robot is picking up dirt, which is right with the games you like, because that's what you've been doing on. Uh, <laughs> that's what, that's what you've been doing on Construction Simulator, huh? Yeah, that that I, I gotta go look up Robot Rubble now. Apparently, I'm gonna add that to my repertoire. It's gonna be my new most played game. Just, just nice. you wait. Very nice. All right, Rob. Well, I um, I that's it for Wasteland. Um. Other than where we live nowadays, I have no interest in, in joining the Wasteland. Before I take it out of here and go to next week, is there anything you'd like to add to today's episode? Well, Dave, as always, I do want to take a quick moment to say thank you to everyone for listening. We hope that it is a fun time for you. We hope you enjoy listening. Uh, and if you've been following us for a while now, uh, thank you for everything you've done up until now. And if you're new, thank you for joining us on this journey. As Dave mentioned, go listen to some previous episodes and hit us up. Let us know what you want for the future because we're always here looking for suggestions, improvements, or even just you telling us how freaking awesome we are. But we couldn't be doing it without y'all, even though we really could. We yeah, really no, could. that. Yeah, no, we still could. So, but either way, we appreciate you joining us on the on the uh, journey. It's fun. And we hope that you're having just as much fun as we are, albeit maybe a little less. Awesome. Well, on that note, next week, we're going to take a look at the game that pretty much popularized the concept of an Easter egg. Also known as one of the first action-adventure games, Adventure was released for the Atari 2600 in 1980 and is frequently seen as one of the most influential games of all time. So next week, we'll tell you its story, 
We'll learn all about the game. We'll learn about how it came to be. You know the drill. So join us again next week as we dive into its Chamber of Secrets on yet another trip down memory card lane to the thing. Doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-